Welcome to another episode of the Amford Church Sermon Podcast. We're thrilled that you're taking the time to listen to what we have to say about God, the world, and you. These sermons are recorded live during our weekly Sunday morning services. To find out more about us or to plan a visit to join us, check out our website, amfordchurch.com. Again, thanks for listening and enjoy. So there are a few things that I think we can safely say Welsh people are good at. Uh, rugby, yeah? I, that's not in my notes. I couldn't write that until after the game yesterday. But I think one of the things we're really good at in Wales is telling stories. Um, I think Welsh people like details. They like um, embellishing things. Uh, have you ever had that experience of just listening to someone speaking and they're telling you about an event or a person or an incident, but you, you hear things like what the weather was like, what they'd had for dinner the day before, kind of what color their socks were and whether they matched or not. And there are details all over the place. One of the things I'm not entirely sure we're good at as Welsh people is actually having a point when we're uh, telling a story. I think actually what we're good at is listening to the sound of our own voices. Have you ever had that experience? Someone is telling you a story, you're absolutely captivated, and then they finish and you're left scratching your head wondering, well, what the heck was the point in all that? Charlotte, have you ever had that experience? Okay, that's good, that's good, that's good. Well, I think there's a sense in which, as we've been going through since Christmas, Um, A couple of chapters in Mark's Gospel, the end of chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, and we've been um, really listening to the discipleship drumbeat that's been going on. Uh, Mark and Jesus have been teaching us, sharing us what it's like to live as uh, a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, how our priorities and our aims and things like that should be totally and utterly upside down. You might have noticed that there's been this passion percussion passion percussion, as in Jesus' description three times of what was going to happen when he finally arrived at Jerusalem. Um, And those three interruptions, really, by Jesus describing his death and resurrection in this narrative of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, they're quite amazing. They're quite fascinating Um, Even if we're only vaguely familiar with the Easter story, knowing what is going to happen and what does happen, and hearing Jesus speak about it beforehand kind of fills our minds with, wow, such detail, such um, amazement over what he's actually speaking about. Here are the three uh, times in chapters 8, 9, and 10 that Jesus speak about his going into Jerusalem. First one, Jesus taught them that it was necessary for the Son of Man himself to suffer many things, to be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, to be killed and, after, and to rise after three days. Chapter 9, he says this, Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after he is killed, he will raise three days later. And then in chapter 10, this is what he says, the son of man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, kill him, and he will rise after three days. Think about what's going on there. Jesus, in some fantastic detail, 
isn't just describing like what he expects to happen, but what does actually go on and happen. And he's got this whole list of who's involved. You might have picked them out. All of the characters. The Son of Man he speaks about in each one is his favorite title for himself. This um, kind of triad, the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, the baddies from the Jews. Uh, He speaks about men in general terms and the Gentiles. He kind of mentions that the Romans are going to get involved. So there's loads of details about who's going to be involved in what happens in Jerusalem. He explains a lot, a lot of the what. He speaks about himself being betrayed, which we know will happen through Judas. We spe- he speaks about himself being condemned, which he is in front of the unjust um, trials, about his suffering, about being rejected, about being mocked and flogged and spat on, about being killed, and then his rising to life. But something from these descriptions is noticeably absent. As you're being carried along with him with the narrative of what will happen when they get to Jerusalem, Jesus seems to neglect perhaps the most important detail of all. He doesn't tell them at any point why. Why is any of that going to happen? And look, we've been in and out of the disciples' minds, their emotions, their experiences. We've analyzed their responses, but there's a sense in which we can totally and utterly relate to their confusion. Jesus is describing to them such terrible events that are going to be taking place in Jerusalem. He is leading the charge in order to get there, but so far, there has been no real description as to why. Surely, if a friend told you that you were heading into real imminent danger, that they thought 100% something terrible was going to happen, you'd expect to be given a very good reason why they'd kind of head in that direction and face it nonetheless, wouldn't you? You'd expect them to give you a why. And like that good Welsh storyteller with loads and loads of details, the ultimate why is left off. And now, now here's the thing. Mark, in his gospel, we've been saying this all along, is trying to show us who Jesus is, isn't he? He's trying to get us to answer the question, who do you think Jesus is? And, and one of the techniques, if you like, one of the tactics he employs is trying to get us, ourselves, to put the pieces of the puzzle together. Like deliberately asking questions and not immediately giving the answer so that we have to go away and mull it over and think about it. And I think this is actually one of those instances where Mark is showing us how Jesus described what was going to happen, but has deliberately left off any sort of explanation why, so that we would come together or we would sit on our own at home and we would go over them and we would ask the question, well, why is that? Why are those things necessary? Why are those things that you've described in such detail um, so important? He's given us the pieces and he's, if you like, asking us or challenging us to try and put the pieces together to finish off the jigsaw. Now, what's our best guess so far from Mark's gospel? 
Um, if you've been reading through it, if you've um, kind of been following along, you've been here every single week, you'll know that actually Jesus has articulated himself once or twice in, in one way or another. Probably the best example of Jesus explaining what he's about comes in Mark chapter 2. In Mark chapter 2, when the Pharisees come to him and they're incredibly annoyed because he's having a party with uh, Levi and a bunch of Levi's friends, people they would term as sinners, they're, they're asking the question, well, why is Jesus, a self-proclaimed holy man, spending time with such a horrible bunch of people? And Jesus says, it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. So we do kind of have a glimpse into what Jesus is describing or Jesus is thinking, his purpose, his point, his mission, his ministry is. Somehow it involves him coming for people who would term themselves, would be termed by everybody else as sinners, those who aren't up to scratch. He's likened himself as a doctor who has come for sick people. But then... How does that match up with what we've been reading in Mark chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10? If Jesus' point and his purpose, the why is to call to him sinners, unrighteous people, does that mean he has to go and suffer in the way that he's described? Does that mean that he's got to go and to die? Does that mean that somehow he has to beat death, conquer death, and rise to life again? It's still a really difficult one to unpack. Well, actually, Jesus does give a fuller answer, and Mark clues us in. Um, it was a passage that we looked at last week, or it was buried in a passage that we looked at last week, because the answer comes in the discussion that Jesus is having with his disciples about greatness, really his discussion about how the world should operate. Do you remember? James and John, they'd asked Jesus to do whatever they asked, Jesus said, well, what do you want me to do? And they said, give us those seats of highest authority. When you enter your glory, King Jesus, let us rule and reign with you. Let us be your second and third in command. We want to have all the power. We want to have all the prestige and the reputation. And Jesus had to remind them again for the umpteenth time. And he gathered all the disciples again to remind them of this. Jesus called them over and said to them, you know that those who, regard, those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those in high positions act as tyrants over them. He says, look, I know you know this is how the world operates around us, isn't it? That for people to be in power, that means they need to press down, they need to subjugate, they need to exercise their strength over and above others. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you will be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is taking them back to the original blueprint for the world that we're supposed to be living in. That when humanity was created and given a place of special honor and dignity and authority in the world, the command was to, to rule, to subdue, and to take care of everything. That the power that humanity had been given was supposed to be uh, wielded 
for the benefit of those under their authority. And Jesus is describing to his followers that if they want to be a part of his kingdom, which he's bringing in, that's been another big, big part of the gospel of Mark. If you want to be a part of my kingdom, it's going back to that original design. That those who are in power, that those who have authority, don't use it to crush others, but use it to serve others. They use that position, they sacrifice from that position of power and strength and authority for the benefit of those that they are over and above. And he can't think, let, let's not miss that, that is definitely what Jesus is teaching in this passage. Sorry, let me just say that. It's definitely what he's teaching. It's still on this upside down kingdom mentality that we really need to re-understand, re-figure out what it means to be people in the, the basis sense of that word in our world with the privileges that we have. It is to use that privilege for the benefit of others. But as he's teaching that, he cannot think of a more prime example of that original paradigm than himself, than what he is doing in coming to earth. Jesus, speaking of himself as this example, this is the phrase that he uses, isn't it? Even the Son of Man, that highest and ex most exalted figure of humanity in all of Scripture, Daniel 7, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's the answer. It's the why behind all of what he's been describing about his trip to Jerusalem. And probably the keyest word there is ransom. The reason that Jesus has to go to Jerusalem, that he has to be betrayed, that he has to be condemned, that he has to be rejected and flogged and mocked and spat on and die and rise to life again, he says, is because he is serving us by offering his life as a ransom. So, Basically, all I want us to do this morning is try and figure out, well, what is this ransom? Like, like, what's he on about? Because even in that statement, it's not immediately clear to us exactly what he's articulating, is it? Uh, people have gone seriously wrong on this. Um, it's a word association thing where people have gone down rabbit trails and warrens and they've come out with some totally and utterly wrong thinking about Jesus' life and his death and us and the world that we live in. Um, so we have to understand it as Jesus uses it and as Mark uses it. Uh, it's not a word that's unfamiliar to us. As soon as we see the word ransom, we think of kidnap, don't we? We think of someone sending a note, letters cut out of magazines and stuck together and sent through. Um, that's our modern understanding. But if we really want to understand what Jesus is saying is the why to his going to Jerusalem and dying and rising to life again, we should understand it from Mark's point of view. And I'm going to suggest we look and think about two places, and that's how people understood it in Rome. Remember, Mark is writing to Rome, and the Roman Empire is the culture in which they lived in, but also how people understood it in the rest of the Bible. So in Rome, what is ransom? Well, ransom in their culture immediately was all about the cost, money, of setting someone free. 
either a servant or a slave or a prisoner of war. Everybody had a value attached to their lives that if someone was willing enough to come along and pay or if the person who was in servitude or slavery um, earned enough money, gathered enough money together, they could pay that price and they'd be set free. They wouldn't be a servant, they wouldn't be a slave, they wouldn't be a prisoner of war anymore. They would, having already been alive in, in one sense, in this sense of captivity, they would be set free. And so the like, immediate context, if we think about people reading this as Mark wrote it to the Christians in Rome, probably would have been thinking something along those lines. That Jesus is saying that he is going to give his life as the payment for their freedom, for their being set free. And we see that elsewhere in the scriptures. Uh, Paul and Peter and others write about us being bought at a price, about being bought by things that are far more precious than silver and gold, but in Jesus' blood. This idea permeates right throughout the New Testament, that somehow, in some way, shape, or form, Jesus' life is the cost, is the payment for us to go free. But what about ransom in the Old Testament, in the rest of the Bible? Is this just an idea that appeared in the Roman world when they started enslaving people and conquering other nations and taking prisoners of war for themselves? Well, no, it's not. Um, in the Old Testament, a ransom, and literally the word that Mark uses, is used fair amount of times. And it's used in books like Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. And it's used always in association with the sacrifices that are going on in the tabernacle. The uh, different ways that um, the Israelites were supposed to um, make themselves right before God. One of the most blatant and specific examples is in Exodus 20. Um, and there's this value being described that it's set for every single individual. And this is what it says. Each one, each person must pay the Lord a ransom for his life. The rich are not to give more. The poor are not to give less. It is an offering to the Lord to atone for your lives. So when Mark records Jesus describing what he's going to do as paying a ransom, we should also have in our minds this idea that it's some sort of payment being given so that we can have life. That somehow it's related and integrated with a sacrifice being made so that we can be right with God. That we can avoid the judgment that we deserve because of our rebellion. Now, Jesus, all through Mark, has been in one way or another describing what life is really supposed to be like. Um, he's been going around and he's been restoring life to people in different ways. We've met the leper who was cast out. Real life is being brought in. We've met the people who were paralyzed or otherwise um, inhibited through disability, blind people, deaf people. And Jesus says, well, I want to make your life whole. Um, that's been happening time and time again. We've had the crowd who are hungry and spiritually lost. And he says, I want you to be restored to full life. So life has been a massive theme. And in this word ransom, I think we get that in spades. Being set free to live and a payment being made for our life. And if we think about it, I think basically it can be summed up in three things. 
that Jesus offering himself as a ransom achieves for us forgiveness, it achieves for us freedom, and it achieves for us fullness. Jesus is going up to Jerusalem, he says, so that we can live forgiven, live free, and live fully. Live forgiven. And that's really where it starts. If we are in Exodus and we're looking at that whole sacrificial system, this is truly where it starts. That we need to understand our need of being cleansed of our guilt. Jesus has said, in describing himself as the ransom for many, that he is the means to do that. Now, all the way through Mark, we've been saying, haven't we? Get to know Jesus, figure out who Jesus is. But really, to understand who Jesus is, there's a sense in which we have to come to understand who we are as well. Isn't that right? That if Jesus is one who has come so that we can live forgiven, well, presumably, we need to ask the question, do we view ourselves as people who are guilty? Do we see ourselves as people who need to be forgiven? Because if we don't, Jesus coming and saying, I'm going to do that for you, simply won't make sense, will it? Like when someone comes up to you and says, oh, I forgive you, unless you know what you've done wrong, it's just a nothing statement. It's a confusing situation. So I will ask us all the question this morning, how do we see ourselves? Do we see ourselves as guilty people in need of forgiveness? Or do we see ourselves as innocent people who are just happily kicking our heels moving along? I think when Jesus comes and he says that he has come to give his life as a ransom for many, we have to start to see ourselves as guilty people who have been forgiven in Jesus. And that's so important, not just for recognizing and accepting what Jesus achieved, but it's so important for us to carry on living in this sense. Because when we realize that we are guilty before God, for rejecting him, for turning our back on him, for living in the world, not like Jesus is describing to his disciples, but like James and John have been thinking, lording authority and power and strength and desires over one another. When we recognize that and that we've been forgiven by Jesus, it means that we can be open about our struggles. They're not things that we need to keep secret anymore. We can be honest about how we are tempted, like the monkey in Jamie's illustration a couple of weeks ago, to return to that coconut where we think we'll find food. We can be thankful. Part of living forgiven means acknowledging that we are guilty in the first place, but it frees us up so much to enjoy the goodness and the love of God. Have you ever been in that situation where you've hurt someone and for whatever reason there's been a gap in time between you hurting them and you being able to apologize and then being able to forgive you? It's a horrible state of existence when the guilt weighs you down or when you've done something and you're not sure whether other people know about it yet, it's a horrible existence because you're waiting and you're worrying about whether it will ever be uncovered. 
Jesus coming to live and die and to rise again, to give his life as a ransom for us, means that we can be forgiven and live forgiven and have that weight, that burden just taken away. That when we come to God, we are forgiven people. It speaks about us living free. And that, I think, is where it sensibly goes next in our mind. That if we've been forgiven for our rebellion, our rejection of God, if we've been forgiven for the way that we have treated one another, then it gives us that freedom, doesn't it? You see, that power that sin has on us tricks us. So often we think of ourselves as people who are free totally and utterly to live life as we please. I think that's just an illusion. When I was speaking with university students a couple of years ago, um, I kind of did a little survey with them and asked, well, how many of you have grown up always wanting to come to this particular university? Like that was your hope and your dream as as a young child, even as a teenager. How many of you have gone on gap years? And when you've been on gap years, have gone to X, Y, and Z, foreign, exotic location. And generally speaking, the answers came back that proved the point that though people were living life as if they were free, so much of what we do is actually predetermined, predescribed by our culture, our society, our circumstances, and our own temperaments. And The truth is that we are not free people to make our own decisions, but we are, before Christ, captives to sin. That the sin that exists in our lives, the rebellion and the rejection of God and each other, makes us people who have to live in certain ways. It masquerades as freedom, but it's really captivity. We're slaves to making decisions which benefit us at the cost of other people. We're slaves to living lives that are full of fear of the results of our sin and rebellion. We're scared of death. We are slaves and we are captives to the temptation of sin. What it promises that it will reward us with, but never ever delivers like the monkey and the coconut. And when Jesus comes and he says that he dies as a ransom and rises to life again, it means that we can live as free people. Now, so many people would accuse Christianity of being the exact opposite. I don't know whether you've thought of it like that, that you think, well, I am free now, but if I trust in Jesus, if I become a Christian, if I become a follower of that book, the Bible, with all its rules and regulations and its morality, that is inhibiting me. That is shutting down my life, and and, and, and it is what is going to be enslaving me. Well, there is a sense in which that is true. Elsewhere in the Bible, Paul does describe, instead of being a captive to sin, we are now a captive to righteousness, that we are slaves of God. But see, what, what we find when we read our Bibles is that we're actually being set free to live life as we were intended to live it. That now, all of a sudden, because of what Jesus has done in removing the penalty and the power and the persuasion of sin is that we can say yes to other people and no to ourselves, which we truly couldn't do before. That we can stare down death in the face, and though it will hurt, we can still have hope and peace and joy. 
And when sin rises up and tempts us and says, do you know what, this will be so, so good for you, we can see past it and we can see the damage, the danger that exists there. And we can look to Jesus and find our satisfaction in him. In Titus 2, it's described like this, that Jesus is coming, teaches us to say no to all ungodliness. We get to live free. And so that means that we don't need to succumb anymore. When the monkey who is off in the jungle enjoying his freeness hears that whisper of the coconut saying, come, there's fruit, there's nuts. We, we can say no, we can totally and utterly maintain our freedom there. And then the last thing is this. Jesus saying that he comes to give his life as a ransom for men, he means that we at last can live fully. Again, we ask the question, what, does, what is our own perception of ourselves? Do we perceive ourselves truly without Jesus as people who are missing out? Do we perceive ourselves as people who are missing out? I think so much of the time we see the Christian life as missing out. That when we've been taught by the gospel to say no to certain things, then that means that our life is less than it was before. But we're not. We are fully alive. One of the things that I like doing uh, when I'm reading the Bible is just taking themes and topics and tracing them through as I go. Uh, ideas, pictures, words, it's called biblical theology, technically speaking. But it's when the Bible develops stories and, and develops imageries. And, and one of the things it does powerfully in this sense is the description of human beings and beasts. You go all the way back to the beginning and there are two groups that are made on the same day in Genesis chapter 1. The animals and these special animals, humans. And as the story continues, what it actually describes is humanity's descent into being wild beasts. And there are so many famous characters in the Bible, uh, people like King Nebuchadnezzar and others, who their actions and their lives really mimic this wild, beastly imagery. And one of the things the biblical authors are trying to show us is that through sin, through rejecting God, we are less than now human, that we are less than what we were made to be. And part of the whole story of the Bible is Jesus coming in to restore us to the fullness of what we were created to be, to remove that wild beastedness and return us to that position of being exalted, fully alive human beings. And part of that, part of living fully is sacrificing and serving for one another. Remember, this is exactly the context in which Jesus is making this why declaration. Why have I come to live like this? Why have I come to die like this? Why have I come to rise to life again so that you can live fully, so that you can be the humans that you were created to be? Loving, caring, sacrificing, serving everybody else. Do you know, unless we're doing that, we are missing out. We are missing out on what it means to be God's image bearers. We are missing out on what it means to be humans. So Jesus has come 
And the why of that, well, here in Mark 10, it's articulated like this, that he has come to give his life, the price, as a ransom for the many, for us, for anyone who would trust in him, believe in him. And that means living forgiven. It means living free. And it means, at last, being able to live fully. To truly grasp that, we need to have a proper picture of who Jesus is, and we need to have a proper picture of who we are. Guilty people, captive people, people who are missing out without Jesus. But Rodri opened the service uh, like this, didn't he? He described the gospel, the Christian message, as an invitation, an invitation into all of these things. Jesus isn't just speaking about what he's doing in an academic way or a, um, a narrative of history sort of way, that these are happening out there, away from us, irrelevant to us. Jesus is speaking about them as if they matter fully to each and every one of us today. That these things are ours when we trust in Jesus and we are each invited to experience them and to own them for ourselves. So I'm going to lead us in a prayer before the band come up and we sing a song in response. And the prayer is just a prayer of acceptance, really. A prayer is just a prayer of saying, yes, the way that the Bible describes me is true. Yes, what Jesus has done for me is true. And yes, I want to live in such a way that this has made a difference in my life. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for everything that Jesus was prepared to do for us. We thank you that he came to turn life upside down, which was to turn it the right way back up again. Lord, we acknowledge ourselves as guilty, captive people who are missing out on what it truly means to be human because of our rejection, because of our rebellion against you and against one another. Lord, we thank you for the forgiveness that Jesus brings and the freedom that we can enjoy from sin. We thank you for the free and full life that we can now live as we look to serve you and to serve one another. We thank you ultimately that the gospel is about the Son of Man, the highest, the most heavenly, the most exalted human who has ever existed, who though being rich, emptied himself for us who were poor so that we in him could become rich. Lord, help us to see how rich we are. Help us to live like forgiven people not bearing the guilt anymore, not bearing the shame, not being scared of being exposed. Help us to live like free people who are able to say no to ungodliness. Help us to live fully human, to sacrifice for the benefit of others, Lord God. We pray that you would be at work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. hope that you found today's message useful and challenging and we want to take a moment to offer you some next steps that you can take right now why not get in touch with us via email at contact at amfordchurch.com if you have any follow-up questions or things that you'd like to discuss if you want to know more about what's going on at Amford Church make sure to like us on Facebook and lastly check out our YouTube channel for video teaching in addition to our sermon podcasts Thanks for listening.